Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Episode 266, Momo tracking down the Missouri monster with Seth Breedlove. Love talking about cryptids with you, Wendy. Yeah, it's one of our favorite things. Absolutely. And so um, we know that we met a lot of other people that love cryptozoology this weekend, did we not? Oh my gosh, so many people. Yes. What a fun time up in Menominee, Wisconsin. Yes, the uh, Menominee, the little-known treasure that lies between Eau Claire, Wisconsin, the home of Bon Iver, and Minneapolis, <laughs> Wisconsin, the former home of Prince. Oh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I have to say, I did fall in love with that theater that it was held in. Yes, the Mabel Tainter. The Mabel Tainter Theater. It was built in honor of a young lady that died at a very unfortunately young age, and her family, I guess she was really into the arts. And so that was their tribute to her as they built this theater. And I have to say, what a what an incredible tribute, because here we are, you know, over 100 years later, enjoying that beautiful space. It is. I mean, it's a, it seats about a couple hundred people, and it's just a perfect little theater the way it looks, and it's, it's beautiful. Um, interestingly enough, so I, when I was uh, reading about Mabel Tainter, there's a couple of UW Stout professors who released a, a, a book on the history of Menominee not oh. too long ago, and uh, now Andrew Tainter, Mabel's father, became like a like a lumber baron. You know, so he mm-hmm. would get, get really wealthy in 19th, That's century, the, 19th century. That was the place for it up there in Wisconsin. That's right. And uh, he became really wealthy. And after he left his first wife, he had five children with his first wife. And then he got custody of the children and then had a new wife and had five more kids. New wife, Bertha. Wow. And Mabel was one of those kids. But also, in the history that they were talking about, they said that there was rumors that Mabel had fallen in love with a, with a lowly lumberjack that worked for her father, and he got her pregnant. What? And, and Bertha and Andrew Tainter forced Mabel to get uh, a 19th no. century abortion, and that's, it, <sighs> it was botched. That's how she died, and then they built. Oh the, my gosh. They built the theater because they felt guilty. Whoa, that's really, really scandalous. I was gonna say that's a, that's some dark history. Now I don't know if that history is true. It's just on uh, like the Wisconsin Wiki that a couple of professors put forward that theory a few years ago. Okay, so it's a theory. Obviously, we can't prove it, but right, we it's interesting because we looked it up because you know the theater's beautiful and there's there's these gorgeous stained glass windows that have Mabel's name and her birth and death dates, mm-hmm. you know, as part of the artwork. And so we looked it up to find out, you know, cause there was, there was also a piano that she had played and it said, you know, it, it alluded to her tragic death. And so I was curious cause usually, you know, tragic, well, I guess it's always tragic when it's someone that young, Yeah. but you know, you hear the word tragic and you think of something like really dramatic happening, right. like, I don't know, like a like a tree falling on her and killing her or something like that. And then what we found was, you know, it said it was some kind of like intestinal 
disease or something that she died of. So, wow, scandal. That right, scandalous and sad and this beautiful so place, sad. this beautiful place then created out of the, you know, the depths of a parent's guilt. Um, anyway, that was some dark stuff. That was really dark. Uh, but I, that's what I was looking up because I was wanting to write about it because also it's a bunch of ghost stories, um, yeah. hauntings associated with it. And they, yeah. they had some pretty cool paranormal investigations. Um, like the, you, know, could, you could investigate the theater with Grant from the Ghost Hunters kind of thing. And yeah. Cool. What a conference, too. They had Travis Walton. Yes. Was one of the speakers, the abductee. That was um, the, the in inspiration the for Fire in the Sky. Uh, Allison Jorlin, our very own, That's right, you'll gave hear an more. amazing presentation about the women in the paranormal scene. You'll hear more so, from her in a little bit when she joins us for the conversation with Seth. And just a, a good variety of speakers. And we had a lot of fun. We made a lot of friends. If, so. you are, if you're a new listener that we met at the conference, hello and welcome. Yeah, come say <laughs> hi. Um, so anyway, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and that was kind of... It's been fun because we had Milwaukee Paracon a couple weeks ago and now this. And it's just, I feel like we're ramping so quickly into October. Yes, the, it's coming up. Exciting month of the year. And I'm going to be doing a couple of ghost tours this weekend in Waukesha, Mike. Yeah, that's right. So if you are in the southeast of Wisconsin area, you can get the skinny on the ghosts of Waukesha, Wisconsin, Spring City itself. Yes, October 4th and 5th. Your celebrity ghost guy. <laughs> celebrity yeah that's you know that's debatable but anyway we gotta sell i'd love to see you on the tour (laughs) right so the mabeltainer was awesome uh we enjoyed everybody we met and we enjoyed all the presentations Mm -hmm. it was quite quite an experience i'd say i'd say it was a lot of fun um and you know this next thing we're talking about today uh, with Seth Breedlove, his new movie um, is a lot of fun as well. And the thing is, his movies always are a lot of fun, but this time they went the extra mile. Now we've talked to Seth before. We talked to him about his movie about the Beast of Bray Road. Yes, our favorite. And uh, we talked about um, his movie about the the terror in the skies and all the gigantic flying birds people have seen in Illinois over the years. And we also talked to uh, his partner, Lyle Blackburn, uh, about the Small Town Monsters series before. So we've been covering Small Town Monsters for the past couple of years here, and we really enjoy their films. And so Seth is going to say STM a bunch in the interview. So that's just shorthand for Small Town Monsters. And that's a production company, or is that the series? That's the series that they do. Okay. They're like an hour, hour and 15 minute long films uh, about these, you know, these stories that you don't hear a lot about. And so, like, I had never heard of the Missouri monster uh, nicknamed Momo before. <laughs> uh, so that was a fun thing to be able to, you know, watch it. And this particular film is interesting because what he does is they have, the like, the documentary parts of it. And that part's, like, we're all used to watching that. But they have, like, a film-within-a-film framing device. Uh, so what they do is they recreate... Uh, the encounters with Momo and do them in like a 1970s Z movie style. So it's, um, so, you know, as you watch, and then Lyle Blackburn uh, acts as a host for it. So it's cool. Like he's playing a horror host introducing this <laughs> 1970s awesome. forgotten horror movie. And that's what makes it a lot of fun. So Momo the Missouri Monster, you get a little bit of the, like the documentary part of it when they're talking to the townspeople and they visit the town where this happened and, and talk to the people today. 
And then, uh, you know, they go into this, you know, super cheesy 70s style film of the monster attacking people. And that's where it gets really fun. And so, uh, you know, we're talking to Seth about his different, uh, like, narrative choices, the, you know, the way he approaches storytelling. And that's what makes it great. But I had never heard of Momo before, so I've got to give everybody a quick primer on who this Missouri monster is. Yeah. So the town that this happened in is uh, Louisiana, Missouri. Oh, wait, yeah. which one? No, Louisiana. I know, I'm, uh, I'm being funny. Uh, listen to you, you. Um, all right. Yeah, I'm a comedian. Yep, you are the Jerry Seinfeld of the paranormal world. <laughs> um, so Louisiana, Missouri, population like, you know, 4,600 people. Uh, in the early 1970s, and this is on the northeast border of Missouri. Near, like it's it's right on the Illinois border. Border. It's a Mississippi River town. So it's you know it's one of those towns uh, that in the 19th century, like you know there was a lot of different activity there, a lot of different business there, and the town kind of you know explodes in the 19th century. But as the Mississippi River becomes less of important to the you know the economy of the nation, things start drying up. So so by the 1970s, uh, it's a small town, mm. and you get. The summer of 1971, you get two girls, Joan Mills and Mary Ryan. Uh, they're driving on Highway 79, north of Louisiana, Missouri, and they stop to have a picnic. So this sounds like the most wholesome thing in the world. Just a couple of girls in the car Lovely. stop to have a picnic. But it's 1971, uh, so they're probably doing drugs. No, I don't know what they're doing. Okay. But- <laughs> nice. But, but the thing is, you know, uh, you know so uh, Mary Ryan says, we were eating lunch. We both wrinkled up our noses at the same time, and I never smelled anything as bad in my life. Uh oh. I, I turned around, and this thing was standing there in the thicket. The weeds were pretty high, and I just saw the top part of this creature. It was staring down at us. And then Mary, she says, it was half ape and half man. I've been reading up on the abominable snowman since then, and from stories and articles, you get the idea that these things are more like gorillas. This thing was not like that at all. It had hair all over the body as if it was an ape, yet the face was definitely human. It was more hmm. like a hairy human. And then Joan Mills like adds, then it made a little gurgling sound, like someone trying to whistle underwater. So they see this thing, they run into their car, they, you know, they, they lock the doors, and then you know, the Momo starts like banging on the hood of their car and tries to open the doors. Oh, man. So then Mary's like, it walked upright on two feet and its arms dangled way down. The arms were partially covered with hair, but the hands and the palms were hairless. We had plenty of time to see this. Uh, So then, you know, she starts banging on the horn and it gets scared by the horn. And um, it goes over to their picnic blanket and then eats her peanut butter sandwich (laughs) in one bite. (laughs) Well, can you, you know, blame it? That must have been a, a darn good sandwich. Yeah. And so, and then it, uh, it picks up the other girl's purse, looks at it, drops it back, and runs off into the woods. Okay. And that's it. So, I mean, they immediately submit a report to the Missouri State Patrol that they'd been attacked by like a hairy monster <laughs> okay. somewhere by Louisiana, Missouri. Uh-huh. And that's the only time anything happens to them. That's the only time anything happens in 1971. 1972, the summer starts. Uh, Tuesday, July 11th, you get... A couple of kids, Terry Harrison, he's eight years old. His brother Wally, he's five years old. They're playing in the yard that's at the foot of this hill. And as they're playing, they start screaming. Their sister, Doris, <laughs> she, you know, she hears them. She looks outside. She's in the bathroom. And she looks outside the window when she hears the screams. And she says she sees something standing by the tree. Six or seven feet tall, black and hairy. It stood like a man, but it didn't look like one to me. 
Oh, wow. She said it had like blood spatter on it oh. and that it was carrying a dead dog under its arm. Oh, that's, that's just what you want to see hanging out with your kids. Right. And, it, it, you know, its face can't be seen because it's got this mass of hair over it. And she said it didn't have a neck. Huh. So then, uh, same afternoon, Miss Clarence Lee, who lives half a block away, she hears animal sounds growling, carrying on something terrible. Uh, she talks to a farmer not too long after whose dog disappeared. So that's where they think that, that the dog Momo was holding might have been. Aww. And uh, so Terry uh, and Doris and Wally's father, Edgar Harrison, he's like a deacon in the local church. He's got a regular Friday evening prayer meeting at his house. After the prayer meeting, him and you know a whole bunch of people are standing outside, and then they see two fireballs like soaring over the hill. Wow. And the first one was white, the second one was green, and so they see like a UFO kind huh. of thing. And then they start hearing weird noises, and they start hearing growling. Uh-oh. Right. Some you know, serious high strangeness going right, on. So they, so they immediately call the police. The police come. They can't find anything. And But later that night, Edgar Harrison says that, well, I was looking around. He was looking around the hill. He, you know, he came out of an old building where he smelled something so disgusting, a moldy horse smell or a strong garbage smell. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time he had, you know, encountered some kind of strange odor from the area that the noises were coming from. Next morning, somebody sees a, a like a dark, large object walking, uh, you know, crossing the road. And so what happens is the police chief then decides to get a posse together to go look for it. So they really, like, this wasn't just like these people were crazy. The police took them seriously, formed a posse, and then went out to see what they could find. Oh, man. They ended up not finding anything. But this became a media sensation, you know, in the tabloids and everything, and the reports like the News of the Weirds and the AP sends out things. Um, Richard Crow from the original Chicago Ghost Tour. Uh, Richard Crow, he comes out, writes an article for Fate magazine. Um, you know, he interviews him. Uh, he goes, you know, out with Edgar Harrison. They go looking for the beast. Edgar Harrison eventually, like, does a... Uh, like a vigil looking for the beast for over 20 days where he camps outside because he's convinced because his kids saw it, his uh, you know, daughter saw it. And so his entire family seems like cursed by this thing. Other people are seeing it. It's a national sensation. But then what happens? Nothing. It kind of, hmm. by the end of, end of July, uh, it kind of goes away. Just petered off. Yeah. But that idea, though, that it's not just people seeing a monster like a cryptid, like a like a some kind of ape man, you know, like Harry and the Hendersons. It's just an ape man that lives in the woods or whatever. Uh, but they see the fireballs too, so you're connecting it to UFO sightings. Hmm. So that comes into it. That's right at the beginning of. Uh, they have the UFO crash right at the beginning of uh, Momo the Missouri Monster too. That's not a spoiler. It's just it's, it's actually a really pretty incredible effect. And <laughs> we talked to Seth about that, too. But Momo the Missouri Monster, the summers of 1971 and 1972, somebody saw a huge Bigfoot-like creature. Other people have suggested it was like a hippie. <laughs> like, that's why he ate the sandwich. I love that theory. Like, the hippie oh, come hair on. Over here. Like, like a particular, particularly hairy uh. hippie. I mean, somebody at the time suggested it was like a wild American Indian. 
throwing out some 1970s casual racism in there too. Uh, it's like, oh, well, probably, no, Bruce probably was an Indian. What? Um, you know, so that's what happened with Momo. And then it's, uh, I'd never heard of it. And Seth's actually pretty surprised that we never heard of it. But yeah. um, it's a, you know, it's a great story and it's a really fun movie. So let's uh, bring Allison in and talk to Seth about Momo the Missouri Monster. We're talking with the cryptid filmmaker himself, Seth Breedlove. Seth, how you doing today? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. I, I have to say real quick, I listened to the uh, Chupacabra song, the, the Sunspot song. <laughs> yes. And uh, it's fantastic. I, ha- I, hadn't, I didn't have a chance to listen to you guys at, at Michigan Paracon. Was that the event? I can't yes. remember. Yeah, we, yes. we were all together at Michigan Paracon. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so I hadn't had a chance to hear it, but I listened to the song yesterday and I was like, oh God, this is, this is fun. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. That's uh, trying to write fun paranormal music for everybody. And, uh, and of course, we're working on a song right now based on uh, Momo the Missouri Monster, oh, cool. uh, inspired by your movie. And that'll be at the end of this episode. Yeah, because um, I find there's just not enough monster music. That's correct. That's correct. We're also joined today by Allison from Milwaukee Ghosts. Yes. Uh, hi, everybody. And uh, no, we all got to, had, had a chance to watch Momo this week. And I have to say, uh, this might be, I, w- I don't want to say silliest, but it definitely has a tongue-in-cheek element to it. Uh, that's a lot of fun. Cool, yeah. I think so- at some point during the making of it, um, Mark Matsky, who co-wrote it, said to me that it was going to be the first STM movie that people would watch and say it was like fun. It's, it's just a fun Yeah, it was movie. very inventive, the way that you retold the story. Yeah, I mean, um, it's satirical and, uh, you know, t- tongue-in-cheek and, and self-referential and self-deprecating and, and all the things that um, that make Jason and Mark and I who we are. Uh, I think that's all sort of buried in, in the writing of the movie. For, for so, so pretty much from the, from the beginning, this thing was um, conceived as being what you see on screen, which is, is probably the first time that's happened with an STM movies. We, we don't do, we don't have pre-production. There's no, there's no like pre-production meetings or anything like that. There's, there's usually a couple of meetings with Zach and I, where we sit down and kind of talk about the look of the movie. But you know, until you get into the interviews, you don't really know how, how a story is going to play out. Cause there's a lot of, when it comes to documentary work, there's a lot of changes that happen in the actual filming of the interviews. And, and, those interviews a lot of the time inform the way the story is being told. And I think it did with this one as well, especially like the documentary side of it, obviously. But as far as the structure of, of the movie and the tone, um, everything is pretty much as it was written in, in the, in the original script, especially like for the narrative, there's only, there were, there were a few things that, that were changed. Um, just due to logistics in terms of filming. Like there was a scene where, where the Harrison boys encountered Momo for a second time that took place later in the script. And that acted as the inciting incident for the posse um, forming, but (laughs) in a weird way that, I mean, I'll get to this in a second. Um, I'll finish my, my thought first. I have this horrible habit of starting one thought and then just abruptly interrupting myself. But um, (laughs) 
the the there was this scene that the boys were fishing and they encountered Momo and uh, and and we actually shot the tail end of that scene where they come back home and 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 their dad's waiting for them and they have this really emotional. Uh, dramatic scene where they're all yelling at each other. That was actually the first scene we shot with the boys and Adam together. Um, but it, it, it ended up the day we were supposed to film the fishing scene. It was pouring down rain and one of the crew got a tick on their, on their stomach. Uh, and there was a lot of panic happening. Uh, and all of our equipment was getting soaked and we, we ended up, um, not being able to film the scene and we had every intention of going back and shooting it. But uh, instead, it, it just kind of fell out of the movie. And we ended up finding that, that the Sutterth garden scene, the sequence where she finds the, the, um, the track, it acted as a good inciting incident as well. And you had that extremely hokey zoom into Edgar's eye that I loved so much. But, <laughs> and now I can't remember what the other thought was that I started off on. But No, that's all right. I, you know, I wanted to talk about you know, those things. You talk about the cheesy zooms and stuff. And... Mm. You know, I think for the people who haven't had a chance to watch Momo yet, um, there, you know, it, it's a, it's a very different, um, you know, compared to the last couple of you know Small Town Monsters productions. That for the production quality is amazing on it, um, and I know you guys aren't dealing with Hollywood style budgets here, so uh, you know, congratulations on uh, all the hard work you put into to make something that looks great. Cool, thanks. But. You know, I think the uh, the idea where you have bits and pieces of a 1970s B-horror movie that's, you know, showing the story of Momo in between the interviews, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's that's part of it that makes it really fun. And where was your first inspiration for that? Like when you guys were talking about it, like how did you be like, you know what, we want to bring out the B-horror uh, 70s style. It's almost, you know, Boggy Creek. Right. I, th- I think... We, we actually had the idea. So originally it was going to be played um, fairly straightforward on the whole. The, the, the um, narrative elements were going to be w- what you pretty much see in the final film, but how you got into those and out of those was going to be basically a typical STM doc. And then instead of recreations, you were going to cut into this narrative horror movie and it was going to be a little more straightforward. Um, instead we decided to like complicate it as much as we possibly could and create this whole like fictionalized TV show, which is sort of when, when I mentioned satire, I mean, that's, that's best basically us sort of poking fun at paranormal TV today. And, and, you know, like, you know, like obviously embracing the sort of like, uh, campy aspect of like cable access shows and late night horror hosts as well. Um, but the idea all, all sort of came together. So so basically, uh, Jason Yudis and I sat down and uh, dreamed up the entire narrative film from start to finish. And I remembered where I was going, which sort of fits in here. Um, and, and basically, we sat down and plotted out this whole narrative horror film. And everything you see as far as the events go within the narrative film are, are things that were claimed to have happened. So... So the prayer meeting on the side of the hill and the lights in the sky and the posse forming and going up, we we change minute details and add some over-the-top elements, especially toward the end of the posse sequence with the bone house scene. But but for the most part, a lot of this is based on actual events that, that were said to have happened. And then we heighten them, which is what they would have done in the 1970s. And then that also gives us the opportunity to set the record straight with the you know, the, the documentary portion of things. Um, 
But we we sat down and we had this whole meeting. We we plotted the entire movie and then we sent it off to Mark Matsky and Matsky did this script, took like the first whack at the script um, and wrote all that and then sent it back. And then Jason and I started tweaking that. And in it, sometime at some point in the interim, we had a meeting uh, at my house that, that consisted of myself and Jason, um, Zach, who's our director of photography, Adrian, who was producer uh, and was also handling buying all the, the set decorations and all that stuff, helping find locations to shoot. Um, and Adam, who played Edgar and was also producing on the movie. Uh, we had this big meeting and, and it was in that meeting, we were sort of debating over how to get into and out of the narrative film. And um, Jason hit upon the idea of having Lyle basically play like a late night horror host. And in those initial meetings, Lyle was going to be very over the top. It was going to be more like, like was he going to dress up? Like was he going to be the you know the evil cowboy or well, whatever? Honestly, <laughs> honestly, it was, and we wanted him to play Count Lyle from Ghoul Town, and he would not do it. Um, and I still think that could have worked well. Like well, I still, totally. I still, right? Think that his totally persona worked. from his band, yeah. I, I, I still thought that that could have worked really well, but Lyle wasn't going for it. So in the end, he's he's basically doing like his riff on on, you know, Leonard Nimoy or something like that instead. Sure. Um, but yeah, we that was the meeting, and that was also the meeting where I was like, well, we this is either going to be a cluster or it's going to be, um, tr- tr- truly original, which is. Uh, you know, like this is the ninth movie we've made. We've also made two miniseries. So at this point, just finding new ways to tell stories is becoming increasingly important to me anyway. And, uh, and so when we hit upon this, I was like, you know what? Like I'm totally down for a challenge and trying to make this work and having a totally different tone from something like terror in the skies that just came out, you know, three months ago or on the trail of Bigfoot and, and, you know, mentioning those two, one of the critiques I'm seeing thrown at the movie is that it, it isn't like other small town monsters and it, you know, it's too, it's too tongue in cheek and all that kind of stuff. And to me, it's like, if, if you're following STM, you've got those things already. You've already got like the straight deadpan documentaries and there's going to be more, you know, like we're, we're going to do more of that. Um, but occasionally we want to do something different. And, and especially if it's going to, um, if it's going to be the the best possible way to tell the story we're telling. And I think in the, in the end we ended up with a storytelling technique that does tell this particular story in the, in the best possible way. And, and it's probably currently my, my favorite STM movie. Um, I just, as a, as a film fan, I was so excited to find a new way to tell a story, you know, and something, and I've said this too, this, this isn't necessarily a movie for like the camo wearing Bigfoot crowd. I, I think if anything, it's, and that's not to say those people couldn't find something here to enjoy, but right. I think it's as much a movie for people who love movies as it is a, a movie for like people who love the paranormal or Bigfoot. Yeah. And, and I just thought uh, the storytelling, uh, you know, reinventing the story was just novel. And I, I think, you know, now with my experience trying to hunt monsters and and finding, you know, that there's there's so much to it that you don't know if it's been influenced by yeah. movies prior totally. or, you know, if you're falling into tropes when people are, you know, people are falling into tropes when they're retelling um, right. what 
what they experienced or the the people who are taking those accounts and then putting them on their blogs are retelling it in a certain way. But I felt I felt I it was interesting from that aspect that that you're trying to be metacognitive and look at things in different ways to get closer to the truth. I mean, what what was the reason that you picked Momo in particular to be your example in that way? You know, why why was that the monster? And maybe tell us a little bit about the background of the monster too. Yeah, yeah. So, well, yeah. Um so Momo was one I had I had wanted to tell this story since Minerva going going literally since since the first STM movie this was the one they kept talking about doing um and and the story has a ton in common um with with the Minerva monster story it's about a you know kids in the 1970s seeing a monster on the hill behind their house um it's it's doing damage to family pets um and the town reacts by sort of ridiculing this family uh to a to a ridiculous degree and um the town itself does very little to embrace its local monster legend and and there there's a ton of similarities just between the two stories beyond that as well um but this was the story uh, I had always wanted to tell. And there was, I think part of the reason to me is that just the monster itself immediately puts you in the mindset of the 1970s. It's, it's that like 1970s shaggy, hairy monster look that, that sort of only popped up during that time period. And again, Minerva, there's physically, there's similarities between the two. Um, What's also interesting about those two movies, and in in a way, um, there would have been something fitting about Small Town Monsters ending with Momo because it was a nine film trajectory from Minerva to Momo, and in that time, the storytelling changed so drastically that we went from Minerva, which was no recreations, nothing of any kind that you could even sort of point to as being recreations pretty much just straight interviews a little bit of b-roll uh you know to to momo which is half the film is a is a recreation and um it's commenting on a lot of the stuff that i found uh irritating about (laughs) about retellings of these stories um it just doesn't overtly try to push any sort of message but but there are so there's there's plenty of subtext sort of buried in there. Um, yeah, so you're not trying to be pedantic about it. You're you're trying to get at it in a fun way, but yeah. still a way that's illuminating. Exactly. There's there's statements in the in the movie towards the end that Lyle makes that I totally don't agree with, and I'm and I wrote them, and I've said this before. Like it, it, as as a storyteller, it's not really my my point of view that I try to get into these movies. You know, like personally, I don't think. Uh, just just retelling a, a, a monster story or, or a, a local legend or a paranormal event in any way um, you see fit is a good way to preserve that story. <laughs> like I'm I'm not really down with that thinking, despite the fact that that's basically what Lyle's line is at the end about how you know like well, these movies are doing their own part to preserve the story. Like I really do think there should be s- striving for truth when it comes to this stuff, but there's also no getting away from it. And and I just saw. 
uh, with with Momo and the fact that it's it's kind of become a forgotten story. Yeah, I'd never heard of it before. Like I saw that you were making a movie about it. See that that's crazy to me. I don't know why, but I was always aware of Momo and Minerva Monster, and I don't live in Missouri. So, but I had always heard of Momo. But but you're indicative of of the response I heard from most people. Like they'd never heard of of Momo, especially younger, like younger people. They've never heard of Momo outside of the the meme, you know? And it's interesting too, because it, you know, Richard Crowe is the guy that wrote the Fate magazine story about right. Momo. Yeah. And Richard Crowe is someone that Alice and I grew up listening to on WGN all the time. Wow, he was, I had he was no the, idea that he wrote about Momo. Yeah, and he, I mean, he was someone that we had followed, you know, and we even made a special pilgrimage to go on his ghost tour before he died and stuff like that. And so... As Richard Crowe's super fans, I can't believe we missed it. Right, and after he died, I did make a pilgrimage to go to his grave, so... I would have to check into this, because I can't remember if it's Richard Crowe. I th- I think it was. I think it was Richard that was actually in Louisiana shortly after the initial case who found the abandoned building that we sort of based the bone house sequence on at the end of the film, um, because that also was a real thing like they found this abandoned building and it seemed like something had been living in the building so when you know when we were dreaming up the end of the movie i was like there should be like human bones all over the ground and <laughs> <laughs> like like uh like that kind of thing but yeah i mean just to get back to your your question i th- i just felt that because of the 70s tie-in and and the, the ideas we had been having about we had been kicking around the idea of doing something that was much more narrative based for a while, um, but still in the, in the documentary realm. Um, this just seemed like the perfect opportunity for us to, to do that and to, to be able to play around with, with narrative storytelling devices, but also say something like, man, like my favorite reviews for this movie so far have been the ones where like the writers are getting it, like the, the underlying messages of the movie and, and especially like Mark's Mark Matsky's talked about it in some of the talks we've had about Momo and he's much more eloquent and, and has a better, uh, as I'm about to make obvious, a better way of speaking, uh, about this stuff. And, and he's talked about like how it is, it is very much a movie about storytelling and how reality is sort of altered in the retelling, uh, especially when it comes to film and, and I, I just don't know. That's what I mean. Like, I don't know that a lot of people are going to get that on an initial viewing. I, I'm also seeing a lot of people, a lot of the the negative reviews that we've uh, received are clearly from people who just didn't pay attention to the movie. Um, and we've had a few where it was like painfully obvious. You want to respond, put your phone down for like five minutes and watch the movie because everything you're <laughs> stating as an issue that you had is explained like very clearly. Um, we, one thing I keep seeing is like, why didn't they factually retell the events instead of like heightening the, the, the everything that happened. And, um, you know, like it's said throughout the movie, this is the way they would have done it in the seventies. And it's also, it's also making a statement about how, how how real events are are altered in the retelling, um, and it's also just like a lot of this is real. You know, like it, it, as crazy as some of this stuff might seem, a lot of this is is a is a pretty straight ahead retelling. You know, the the posse sequence at the end is is a really good example. We took bits and pieces of all sorts of different um, 
encounters that had happened in the woods and put those in the ending. So when you get the scene where like Cliff and Bobo come running up the hill and they come into the opening and there's all these lights floating in the woods, that that happened. That didn't happen to to the posse, but it had happened to to people that had been out in the woods looking for Momo. They had seen strange lights floating in the woods like this. They heard there were there were multiple times where people heard um a voice telling them to stay out of my woods. There was, there was an encounter where two men that were involved in one of the posses were back at the Harrison house, having coffee outside. And a voice said, uh, I want some coffee. And I mean, like if we had put that in the movie, it would have been so ridiculous. People would have immediately assumed that was something we just invented, but that was like a part of, of the actual Momo lore. Like that. Was well, people would have thought that that was part of like a comedy aspect of it or whatever. They're like, is yeah. the, mo- is the monster asking for coffee? Yeah. But that's something that, that was claimed to have happened. So I, I like the way I, I, I guess just as a, a film fan, like if I was watching this from the outside, I think this speaks to a lot of what I enjoy in film. And I think a lot of the success of what you see in the final thing really comes down to Mark and Jason and, you know, the writing that went on and, and, and just how well they sort of nailed that seventies film aspect. There's, we, we talked to so many people at the Mothman festival who had just seen the movie that were convinced that was an actual seventies movie that they, Oh my gosh, really? Wow. Yeah. And, and I was like, well, this one kid I talked to, he was, he thought what we had done is found the seventies movie and then fixed, uh, parts of it, like sort of like, like the effects. He was like the, the, the UFO effects were clearly modern day, but it seemed like everything else, especially the posse sequence was actually from a seventies movie. Um, which is funny cause I think a seventies movie would have done the, the smart thing, which would have been to, to film the posse sequence day for night. But I was an idiot and actually drug everyone out into the woods at midnight and we filmed <laughs> overnight. My favorite bit of seventies lore in there though, was it when they talk about, um, Alice Cooper biting the head off a chicken. Yeah. That's, oh yeah. That's Jason. That's Jason's like a huge Alice Cooper fan. And when we talked about, doing the screenplay he wanted in like Jason had never written before. It was originally just going to be written by, by Mark and I, and Jason was like, you have to let me be a part of this. Cause I have some ideas for the opening, especially with the girls talking in the car. So that's all Jason Udis. Cause he's a huge Alice Cooper fan. Cause yeah, my dad told me that like I, when I was like 12, cause I was like the first tape, I like the first album, you know, mm-hmm. tape I ever bought was Alice Cooper trash. Mm-hmm. And when I bought it, my dad's like, you know, Alice Cooper bit the head off a chicken. <laughs> Can you believe that? And, you know, he was serious because somebody, he taught in a high school. I'm like, that was, you know, somebody told him that probably 16 years earlier. Yeah. You know, and so they just, having that little element of a uh, real urban legend snuck in there. Uh, spoiler alert, Alice Cooper did not really bite a head off a chicken. And he's probably the most conservative Christian rock star around right now. You know, <laughs> he goes to Bible study every week. Well, Wednesday. and the, the thing is, too... That was that was a great, you know, little example of, you know, it's a microcosm of what you're trying to do in the whole movie, which is, you know, kind of get at these urban legend-esque um, turns that things take mm-hmm. and then trying to derive some truth out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what's interesting about 
diving out of the the narrative and into the documentary. I, as far as the documentary side of the movie goes, I don't think there's another STM doc that is this close to what the original concept for Small Town Monsters was to begin with that we've done. It just is so geared around the town itself and the townspeople and how the town views uh, Momo and the Missouri monster lore. Um, I, it is everything I always wanted small town monsters to be short of uh, like one or two of the, of the Harrison kids being on screen. That would have been the icing on the cake. That would have helped really cement a lot of stuff. I think as far as like the reality versus the legend for some people, but I still think, you know, like just, just as a, as a movie, um, as a documentary, the, the documentary portions are, are, are really successful. And I thought the the interviews we got, um, were so so insightful, especially from like Snooky Ward, whose dad led the posse up the hill. Like, yeah, she, she she was so good, and I had to cut out three or four times where she broke down in tears. Yeah, um, she broke down. I mean, yeah, that was like, really emotional. Yeah, and it it's almost unexpected. There there are some like, I mean, it, I'm the sappy one on the crew, so like that stuff always seeps into our movies. Like that's why Terror in the Skies, I've always said, is like the most Seth. Breedlove thing we've done because there's a lot of like sappiness in that movie. That is, that's just me. Um, but this we you're just the Frank Capra of I, cryptid yeah, documentary. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Um, the the oh God that needs to go in my you, bio. Use that quote, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, Mark that. Write it down. Yeah. The 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 ending of the movie. You know, with the the um, the ending on Edgar's. Uh, headstone like there's there's something powerful too about getting to know these people as sort of semi-fictional characters within the context of the narrative and then learning about them as they were viewed through the eyes of the townspeople and then you know learning what happened to edgar and seeing how he's the fact that his gravestone says loving father is such a a poignant way of ending that movie to me because the narrative is very much like a family drama and it's, 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 you know, wrapped up in this goofy, you know, grindhouse stuff and the kids can't act. And I mean, Amy does a great job, but the boys, the boys have a harder time. Um, (laughs) But they were cute. I mean, that's, you're, you're supposed to do that though. Well, I thought seventies movie. Exactly. Like there's everything was uh, put, put the way it was, you know, for a reason. Um, but yeah, the, the way it ends is such a, a, a poignant way of ending the movie because I really think you come away from it even not having Edgar in there sort of talking on his, his own behalf or his children or whatever. You still are learning about him, um, you know, through through the other interviews and through through the narrative in a way and then through that, that headstone at the end. I just think there's, there's some weirdly – emotionally powerful moments in the movie. I just think this is also something, this is a a movie that will reward multiple viewings. And I, I, I've talked to some people who've watched it like three or four times and they keep catching new things, you know, that they didn't notice the first time they went through it. And, and this, this is probably the most positive I've ever been in talking about one of our movies. So I hope people don't think I'm, uh, this is like <laughs> ego driven. It's really not like th- this was a huge collaboration as far as like the STM crew goes. So I don't even feel uh, a huge amount of ownership over this movie. It's it's it, it was a, a team effort. And I really think there's 
There's something special. But I said to my well, wife except last for night, Lyle because he wouldn't be Count Lyle. Right. No, <laughs> he'll forever be on my bad side because of that. But, <laughs> but yeah, I said to my wife last night, like I I think the the most d- disappointing thing to me would be not not whether or not this movie makes money. Because we kind of went into it thinking this might not make any money because it, it's a very neat niche sort of movie, you know, for a very specific audience. Um, but I said it, the most disappointing thing to me would be if it's sort of not ignored, but if it never finds its audience. Because I think there is there's some really unique storytelling choices that are going on here and some storytelling techniques that are, that we're using that haven't necessarily been done before. And just as like someone that's into film, I hope that's discovered. I hope that it's a discovered movie. I hope that people find it. Yeah. And I think that Edgar's story and his family's story is really important to tell, you know, what you were saying before about, you know, getting to know people as like almost a fictional character mm-hmm. It's it's very strange for me when I'm doing research for my writing, my presentations, and you know I learn about people that are long dead, mm-hmm. and you know these incredible and sometimes horrible things that happen to them. You know I start to really take it personally, yes. and sometimes I don't even. I'm like, I want to tell this story, but then I like back away. Nope, can't tell that yet because I haven't found like an appropriate way or, you know, it's really important to come at things with the right amount of respect, you know, I'm and some of these stories are awesome, but it's like these were real people. And, you know, so I'm really, I think understanding what you're trying to say here about, you know, that that tombstone and, you know, that he was this family man. Can you tell us a little bit more about Edgar and, and his family? Yeah, I mean, the the biggest thing that isn't in the movie is that it, there, there were eight kids, not three. Um, and you know, unfortunately, like there's just some aspects of the of the family life that we we didn't feel entirely comfortable delving into how the Harrisons felt about things or or, you know, like what their emotional, what, what, what the case sort of had, what kind of impact it had on them as a family, because we didn't have them there to sort of speak for themselves. So the, the, the narrative film is based on all these retellings we've heard over the years. So what you're seeing in the narrative isn't really anything that hadn't already sort of been portrayed in, you know, like fate magazine or the newspaper articles at the time and things like that. But when it comes to actually trying to put into words on their behalf, how they felt. I just didn't, it's kind of like the conversation we had with terror as far as like the, like, like native Americans and, and how they feel about like the Thunderbird lore and stuff like that. Like I just, there, there comes a point where I don't feel comfortable proceeding beyond a certain point and speaking on behalf of people. So we, we contacted them uh, numerous times. I, I contacted both boys are still alive. Wally and Terry, uh, I contacted them both. Um, in fact, the day we shot Edgar's uh, headstone, Terry, I think it was Terry, is was right down the hill. He he helps manage that uh, cemetery. Um, but we had contacted numerous people in the family. We've been in contact with Edgar's granddaughter, um, who who she was sort of raised by Edgar. Um, We've been in contact with her since pretty much the, the movie began filming, you know, and we, we got a, we were able to get a little bit of information from her that was in the movie, but for the most part, you know, like it's, it's just a 
case that we didn't want to speak on their behalf. So the biggest thing is, I guess the the town, as far as the ridicule factor goes, it seemed like it was worse um, or the worst with, with the younger kids. Um, you know, townspeople knew Edgar and knew him to be an honest man that you could, you know, rely on. So I don't think there was a lot of ridicule from, from older people, from adults aimed at, at the family. But when it came to the kids, I think the kids really got, you know, a lot of ridicule from, from other kids at school. Um, and, and they over time just erected a wall between them and that story. And, or, or maybe that's the wrong way of putting it. Maybe it's, it's more like they put a wall around, uh, that story and themselves in the world. Like they, they are done talking about it. And, um, you know, and contacting them. We did when we were there. I mean, obviously, you know, with Minerva, we, we started small town monsters started as being the, the, the film production company that gets witnesses, right? Like we always go to the witnesses and the witnesses are on camera and we get as many witnesses as we can. And, you know, the Mothman of Point Pleasant has like 11 witness interviews or something. And, and that's our deal. But, um, we were in a situation where we didn't have any of the witnesses and I was, I was so desperate to get someone from the Harrison family in there to speak on their behalf that I actually went to Doris's door. We tracked her down and I went up to her door to ask her to be in the movie, but her health was so poor at the time that, that she couldn't do it. Um, I did get to speak to her for a moment, which was kind of surreal because we had already filmed a lot of the narrative at that point And we had written, you know, the narrative. So I felt like I knew her in some strange way. And you spend so much time re- researching this stuff that when you meet someone, you know, it's like you said, they're, they're almost fictional characters when you meet these people. Um, and, and it was that sort of situation. Like the first time I met her, I felt like I was meeting a, a, a created character instead of a real person. And um, so, yeah, as far as I know, the town's reaction to the family was, was never, um, that they were lying, at least not the adults, but, but that they, they had been hoaxed and had fallen for a hoax. Now they are adamant. The family remains adamant that what they saw was not a hoax. They saw some sort of monster on the hill. Um, and, and that's what they saw Edgar, you know, it's said in the movie, Edgar would fight someone if they, if they, you know, sort of insinuated otherwise that, that they hadn't seen something. He um, knocked a block off. Yeah, he just he cold clock him as as the <laughs> the kids used to say. <laughs> well, you um, know, I, I'm wondering about the town though. Yeah. Um, when you guys went there and the attitude, because you know, I think about this um, because you know we talked about the Beast of Bray Road as one of your earlier films, mm-hmm. and um, you know, one of my friends, his father was a Elkhorn police officer who was you know uh, working at the time of the of the Bray Road Beast. He's passed away now, but. The police officer's wife, uh, she told me one time when, you know, Wendy and I, we actually were in, were performing near Elkhorn, and we're like, oh, we're going to go down to Bray Road uh, and, you know, and take some shots and have some fun. And she's like, oh, I think all that's fake. You know, and she's like, that crazy lady always calls. And she, she was talking about Linda Godfrey. And I'm like, <laughs> of all of the people you would say was a crazy lady, like Linda is so measured and normal and just the facts, ma'am, kind of thing that I just had to have a good laugh. I'm like, oh, if, if you think Linda's crazy, um, then you'd probably think I'm insane. Yeah. Uh, right? Kind of thing. So I, 
that was just, you know, you have the reaction of one of the townspeople, you know, somebody who lives in the area um, had that. So what was that kind of reaction uh, in Louisiana, Missouri? It's a man. I, I had to walk on eggshells here because um, I always try to portray a town in a positive light because I come from a small town. And I know what the uphill battle is like, mm-hmm. but I, I can say they are they're leaving probably the most important part of their their history, a, a piece of their history that could easily uh, do something to at least resuscitate some some of the tourism you know uh, industry in that town they're leaving it on on at the uh, on the ground and that's one speaking of you just came back from Point Pleasant yes. a town that on the other hand has embraced right yeah this is the polar opposite it's like bizarro world Point Pleasant. Um, and, and I've said this before, because it's actually it's it, there's a lot of similarities. They're both river towns. They both have this monster story. Um, but the the they yeah, they they don't. It's I'd hate to generalize and just say they all they all feel this way, because I know in speaking to the Chamber of Commerce, they wanted to do something to they wanted to embrace it. They wanted to have a moth, uh, a Momo festival. Um, and, I'd go. Yeah. And they actually wanted to. Um, do a big Momo screening of the movie. We we unfortunately had to had to sort of put the kibosh on that because of uh, basically I didn't want to create any problems for the Harrisons. The Harrisons sure. d- tried to steer clear of this, so I didn't want to all of a sudden the town's you know using our movie to to sort of bring it back. Um, I just didn't want to create any issues for them. So. Um, but, but yeah, as far as I could learn and it's in the, it's pretty apparent in the movie, you know, like the, the older people laugh it off. Um, the, the, the town historian essentially thinks it's a very unimportant piece of the, the puzzle of the history of Louisiana. And, um, you know, the younger people would love to embrace it, but I also think they're kind of clueless as to what actually happened or, or any of that. And, and maybe, you know, like the movie coming out will change that to some extent but just from being there this is not anything uh this story is not anything that the town really cares all that much about um mm. you can go in there there's a there's a couple if of I restaurants there, that's all i'd care about I know. I'd, I'd have i'd open up the momo <laughs> cafe i'd open yeah it's uh it's dying that the town is dying for something like that it really is the downtown could could really they have a great little local history museum that we shot a couple of the interviews in and you know and and martha sue smith the the town historian she she is a very wonderful person they just don't they don't get they don't get it they don't get the importance of the story and um they they're kind of willing to let it die off uh but but you know like you can't it's so tied into to everything that makes that town what it is. I don't know how you, how you can just sort of shrug it off. And that was, that was something I guess that was with us the entire time we were there is, you know, like we were there at a very depressed um, moment in, in history for that town that they had just had some really bad flooding. Half the town was underwater. You can see that in in some of the B roll. Um, And like literally there were, there were giant chunks of the town that were underwater. Um, like the there was a gas station on one side of town that was under like four or five feet of water. Their town sign, like "Welcome to Welcome to Louisiana," was sitting in water. Um, <laughs> oh man! Like it was there was just something very uh, depressing. I immediately identified 
with that town because I, you know, like we, we've traveled to so many small towns and you see the same kind of thing over and over again, but this was on another scale. And even in talking to the people that live there, they'll tell you like this town's seen better days and we don't know how it's going to survive. Um, yeah. and, and so that was, that was eye-opening. like from a filmmaking standpoint, when it comes to the, to the doc side of things, this was this, we had this discussion while we were, we're filming the documentary. This was the most sort of sad we've ever been while we, while we were filming in a location just because of what the town once was versus what it is today. And the concern that people that live there have for how they're going to keep going. Yeah. And Missouri in particular, um, when I've been through there, you know, there's a lot of little depressed towns, even, Hannibal where you know uh Mark Twain you know all the Mark Twain stuff that they have yeah. going on there I mean it still seems just very poor yes um and you know it, my heart goes out because it, it's like you know there's really real people living there yeah. and you're, you're like why don't they have more money you know they have Mark Twain I mean I well, just I, I think that's something where you you, you talk about um, the ghosts of the Mississippi River kind of thing. Like, it almost seems like, you know, when you go, talk about Alton, Illinois, and mm-hmm. La Crosse, Wisconsin, and Galena, and, you know, even, you know, St. Paul, if St. Paul, Minnesota wasn't the capital of Minnesota, you know, it's the government that kind of, that creates the jobs, you know, in that town, as opposed to, you know, Minneapolis, five miles away, that's more of a boom area and so you look at all these cities on the mississippi river and when the steamboat dried up um you had towns that were built and infrastructure for you know thousands of people but the jobs weren't there yeah that's that's what they're addressing i mean there's there's talk about that in the movie too martha talks about the the coming of the railroad and the the um the yeah the 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 river transportation sort of dying um and how it left them in a in a in a bad situation. I think the other thing too is like there there's nothing in terms of like a highway. There really isn't anything. We had to, to get to a restaurant that was open past ten o'clock. We had to drive twenty five minutes to Bowling Green. Um, so I think it was Bowling Green. It was some town that was also the name of a town in Kentucky. That's that's okay. how I that's how I thought. Uh, so, so Louisiana Bowling Green. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like nice people, but maybe not great with the original town names. Yeah, they need a need, need a little bit of work there. But yeah, as far as like as far as the town goes, they just don't they're they're, they're not on board with it. Now it it is funny. You could go in the in the grocery store and people knew who we were. Like they, they knew why we were in town and they were excited about it, but those were mostly like younger people. The older people, if you talk to anyone, if they noticed you were there for Momo, they would tell you to your face that there was no such thing. Like you care. Um, <laughs> right. You know, like, and that's your opinion right now, pal. Yeah. Yeah. And so you get that, you would, you would get that a lot. There was, uh, in, in one of the downtown restaurants, um, there, there was a, a Bigfoot statue and it would, they called it Momo. Um, but it was just a, you know, a Bigfoot statue, but at least they were doing something there to sort of, you know, keep, keep the memory of Momo alive. But that, that line at the end, you know, Lyle's monologue, the second to last monologue, which is all about, or maybe that is the last monologue where he talks about the, the legend living on. I mean, it, it is a sad thing if a town lets a story like that die just because it has such a huge role in, 
in what makes that town what it is today. Yeah, unique. Yeah. Yeah, and as you were saying, though, you know, there are so many parallels between Mothman in Point Pleasant mm-hmm. and, you know, Momo in in that, you know, it wasn't just a monster. There were a, a, there was a big UFO element. Yeah. And and you know, also the introduction of that that booming voice uh, in the Momo story, you know, reminded me a lot of uh, the Bell Witch, mm-hmm. and you know, maybe maybe we got maybe we got aliens going on, which is um, you know kind of the the way you went with the lights, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, in in uh, those depictions, or maybe it's it's uh, Faye. I mean, the way, or yeah, Poltergeist. The, 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 honestly, I think I think we kind of pulled in everything um the movie opens with like what is very clearly a ufo crashing to earth and yes sort of hinting at the fact (laughs) that that and i love that scene by the way i don't know if you guys noticed but that is those are matte paintings Um, oh wow yeah like santino did that as 70s as you could when that when that ufo comes down that's that's those are matte paintings um with with the ufo animation um which i adore i mean if you if you watch that thing on a big screen, it looks amazing. Um, but the, yeah, I think when, when you get to the voice in the woods and the little lights in the sky, it becomes a less UFO like, and, and what we're sort of hinting at in those scenes is that th- there were, there were multiple phenomena taking place around, around that area at the same time. And it, again, like that ties back to Minerva, um, where you, where you had something similar, you know, like the Caton family claimed that they used to see a woman in, uh, on horseback, behind their house um, who would disappear and there were disappearing caves and there were lights in the woods and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of like similarities between those two. As far as like you, you have to, you have to have that UFO element involved because that's what, you know, at that time there, there was that huge UFO flap and that flap didn't die off in 73. In fact, it went from like 71 through, I think Michael Huntington told us like 78 or 79 where there were, consistent ufo reports around the area and it wasn't obviously relegated to just louisiana but um yeah i I think my favorite part about that posse sequence is when they come into the opening when cliff and bobo lead the crew into the opening and you've got all those lights flying around in in the sky the sound effects there are so bizarre they they almost hint at at fairy uh at fairy lore more than more than like ufos and aliens well, I like that, you know, um, it delves into the high strangeness aspect. Because the thing is, you see, you know, when you see the ship at the beginning, you kind of, like, you forget about that all the way through. Because you, your mind starts just going to straight up the old Bigfoot stories and everything. Mm-hmm. And it's not again until, uh, you you know, the fireballs in yeah. the hill. Yeah. Or, you know, over the, over the hill. Or even start, like, or oh, even yeah. like when the, when the, uh, when the big moment at the end starts to happen, you know, when the family's outside the house and... And the, and the lights in the sky show up. I don't want to spoil what happens there, but um, yeah, there's there's a is it. I love bookends. Like I've I've always loved bookends, and um, and that one has has a really nice bookending between the 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 UFO coming through the sky during the title sequence, and then how it ends with the family. Um, it it's full circle back to where it started. Well, you know, speaking of full circle. Um now you, you you mentioned that you know you were going to start with Minerva and originally end with Momo in the Small Town Monsters you know series of films, and now that you've 
you know, done this many films. Is there something, uh, maybe a theme through it or a, uh, a particular thread that maybe links the cases or links the towns in a way uh, that you didn't realize when you were first looking into it? Um, you, you draw a lot of parallels just between the, the way the towns react and the way the stories play out. I mean, they, they all have that same pattern of like a, an inciting incident that brings the media involved, you know, gets the media involved that leads to the, to the, you know, police and monster hunters coming to town and all that kind of stuff. But I, 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 I don't immediately see parallels between the phenomena themselves. Um, there, there's just, I think due to the, to the 1970s cases, a lot of them being so high strangeness oriented and the fact that so many of our movies involve those 1970s cases, you see a lot of that across all the titles. But yeah, I mean, you, this wasn't really the question you were asking, but the, the, That's all right. the thread that we, that I see now looking, looking back on it is from pre- pretty much from Boggy Creek monster through Momo. Those are, they're all dealing with story. Like they're, they're all, they're all examining the, the idea of storytelling and legend building as much as they are monster cases. And I mean, sometimes it's very overt, like, um, you know, like, like Bray road beast or, uh, the Flatwoods monster, you know, which, which where, where the narration is literally talking about, you know, story. Um, and sometimes it's a little more subtle. I think I, weirdly enough, I think Momo, it's a little more subtle despite the fact that should be so obvious. I, I think some people are, are missing that that's the overriding theme of, of the entire movie. But, um, that's something we've been exploring for a long time. And that's probably just me, um, you know, as, as like someone who started as a writer and being sort of obsessed with storytelling since I was a kid, that's something I keep coming back to. Momo is very um, self-referential and it, it it's almost examining the importance of, or importance or lack of importance of in, in what we do, like in what small town monsters does and what I do. And I think some of that comes from the fact that, you know, you make movies about, we make documentaries about cryptid cases. And I think the quality is, is uh, outstanding, especially for what we're working with. And, and again, when I say something like that, that is not, self praise i'm i'm saying as a crew you know we got some really sweet quality yeah, here, yeah. guys no i i i just think it the quality's there but we will never be taken seriously i won't ever be taken seriously because of the subjects we cover so you know there there's there's moments in the movie in Lyle's monologues especially at the beginning and the very end that are literally about that so maybe that's like my weird way of working through that, you know, like my masochistic way of of thinking like, Oh, I'll never be Errol Morris. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, But you know, I think what you're talking about though, and especially because I think in the conversations we've had uh, over your past couple of documentaries and have discussed how, uh, you know, in the Bray Road Beast, you used some of the inspiration from Hammer. Here, you're using inspiration of 1970s horror movies or like the movies they four-walled and took around, like, right. the, you know, the Legend of Boggy Creek and things. Totally. And uh, using that as inspiration. But saying that, that that is how we tell these stories. That is how we share these stories. And then examining as well, mm-hmm. how we share the stories in that horror movies 
uh, you know, take inspiration uh, a lot of times based on, you know, real life cases. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you take a movie like The Conjuring or something where that's half the scares. It, beyond, it's, it's a well-made film. But the idea that they're selling it as based on a true story, we have a different perspective than coming into the theater. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it sets the audience expectation differently and changes the context around it, where all of a sudden you're in the middle of the film going, oh my God, this really happened. Or when you're, uh, you, when you're watching a quote-unquote based on a true story film, mm-hmm. you bring a different context as a viewer. And yeah. I like that, that that's, you're examining that in a way uh, with your films. There's there's almost less work as a as a filmmaker when it comes to when it comes to making movies about these stories because there's something inherently terrifying about the fact that that people believe they've seen something like the Beast of Bray Road like like that's that's a real thing that someone believes they've encountered um, and I, I I always used to be blown away by the fact that I could talk to people who said that Minerva Monster I keep talking about Minerva Monster for some reason on the show but it's the five year anniversary that's why um, okay. the, 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 I'll talk to people and they'll say that Minerva is the creepiest movie we made or like the, it, they can't watch it at night and I'm I, I kind of chuckle at that because like I watch it and I can't, I can't watch it at night or day or morning or uh, evening I mean it's because I think it's terrible and um <laughs> You know, but other people will watch it, and and because of the fact that you are solely listening to sort of the original witnesses talk about their sightings and things, that that scares people. Like just that reality, the 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 the, I guess the honesty of that film is what people are responding to. So there's, you know, like and there's no recreations in that. That's just people responding to Howie Caton talking about his family seeing this creature on the hill behind their house and the fact that it ripped their dogs, you know, that broke their dog's neck and stuff like that. Mm, so Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the dogs get at people, you know, so that was interesting, you know, how that came out in Momo, you know, that uh, apparently pets were missing mm. and, you know, it's seen, it's seen on the hill, you know, or in the movie uh, representation of it. And, you know, the kids see it and then it holds up the dead dog, yeah. you know, as <laughs> as kind of like, here I am, look what I did. Yeah. You know, it's so proud of itself. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's interesting that, that, you know, Minerva Monster was just, you know, the rawness of... People talking. Speaking, yeah, speaking to the witnesses. Yes. And just straight up. And that's hard for people to deal with because of so much reality. Yeah, and that's what I was um, saying too. With like, yeah, with like the full the full circle thing from Minerva to Momo. I don't think I ever, I don't think I've ever planned on quitting with Momo. I just think if you did, if if something had happened, if like we went broke and, and could no right. longer make small town monsters movies, it would have been a the perfect place to to end because you've got. You know, to sit down and watch Minerva to Momo would be really interesting. I would never be able to do it, um, but but that would be a really interesting thing to watch. Is is the progression from from the one to to the other? Well, if people want to check out Momo, um, number one, you can check the show notes, and you'll see at othersidepodcast.com slash two sixty six. We'll have a direct link. But if you don't go, if you want to just go right now to the which where can people watch it right now? Uh, they can watch it on Amazon 
Vimeo on demand. It needs to get up on VidiSpace, but I was late in sending it to Elizabeth, so it's not up on VidiSpace yet. Um, and it's available on DVD through smalltownmonsters.com. It is being pitched um, along with a few other STM movies at a um, on a much larger scale than we've ever done anything before. So, so there is a a hope that some of these movies um, will be available to a larger audience on a larger scale sometime. Ooh. within the next year and a half. Um, and we're just kind of waiting on, on you know, word back on that. Um, but there's there's the hope that, that these three, or the last four plus the two miniseries will be available on a, on a much larger scale. And some of our movies are already available on a larger scale, you know, but um, this would be beyond where where anything that we've done is so far. So hopefully well, that exciting. comes together. So we'll, we'll keep our, we'll keep our fingers crossed for that. Seth, we just want to thank you again for your time. Uh, sharing, yes. Thank you so much. Sharing your behind the scenes stories. And always like to have this. We encourage people to watch the movie and then have the discussion afterwards. And this is your special features right here to help out uh, for a discussion after the film. And um, thank you for all you do. It's really great. Uh, real quick. What's can you share your next project with us? Oh, yeah. Uh, we are actually, I leave this weekend for family vacation. While we're on family vacation in Orlando, we are picking up uh, Shannon LeGrove from the airport. And on our way back from family vacation, we will be shooting more stuff for On the Trail of UFOs. And then as soon as we get back to Ohio, I am immediately leaving and doing an East Coast leg of filming from the Trail of UFOs. It'll be a total of like 11 straight days of filming, which is the longest we've we've ever done. Um, so on the Trail of UFOs will be the next STM release, and that'll be out in probably April of next year. Uh, and that's going to be a very large-scale mini... Oh, good, the clock. Um, that'll be a, <laughs> a very large... We've come full circle. Yeah. Um, the clock it's just like turned. Minerva to Momo. Um, <laughs> No, it'll be a very large-scale miniseries about the UFO subject, and that will be followed in September of 2020 by The Mothman Legacy, which will be followed in December by The Mark of the Bell Witch. Awesome. Ooh. Well, we're looking forward uh, to seeing all that stuff. Good luck uh, on what I think. I think Momo is a really fun documentary, and uh, you guys did a great job. So congratulations once again, and just good luck with the project. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Well, that's definitely a great one to check out this month, Mike. The month of October, the month of the weird and strange and fun and spooky. That's right. We're kicking off for October with some cryptids. Yeah. So add Momo to your queue this month, everybody. Yep. You can grab an Amazon Prime. We have links directly at othersidepodcast.com slash 266 as well. Now for the song this week, well, we wanted to pay homage to the 1970s uh, like Seth Breedlove did. You know, he's making a early 70s grindhouse style B-movie, and we wanted to create 1970s hard rock track that we think that maybe, you know, when those girls were driving along and they had their picnic lunch, what kind of music were they listening to? Well, it used to be the kind of hard rock song we think they'd be listening to <laughs> when they, you know, right before their picnic. And so uh, this is us, Sunspot, with our song inspired by the Missouri monster, Momo. Stepping out on you 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Oh, we got a hangout coming up this week, Mike. Oh, yeah. October 2nd at 7.30 Central Time. We're going to be hanging out with our Patreon community and talking about Momo, talking about the conferences, talking about weird haunting experience that happened to us and and, uh, all the kind of fun things um, that we love discussing with our best friends, the Patreon. Got to find out what everybody's planning for October. I mean, this is technically our September hangout. But it's early in the month. And so, um, yeah, I think I'm going to have to pick up some candy corn for this one. Absolutely. Oh, I saw a great I saw a great meme today. It's like, how do you eat candy corn? And it's like, oh, like pick up the candy corn, throw it in the trash. Oh, boo. <laughs> throw it in <laughs> I, Wendy's hey, mouth. All right. Every, that's the thing. <laughs> and that's the kind of stuff you discover in the head. <laughs> that Wendy, Wendy now will be the only person you've ever met, even virtually. Come on. No. Corn. It's everywhere. Yeah, at least she doesn't like circus peanuts, everybody. Well, somebody's got to keep the candy corn factory in business, and I'm happy to be the one to do that. <laughs> That's right. The thing is, everybody needs a friend that likes candy corn uh, so you can get rid of yours. <laughs> but, you know, we want to talk about all the fun plans everybody has for October. The, you know, the, it's, it's Christmas season for weirdos, and we are going full into it this month because we're going to have appearances at a you know, two more conventions, uh, Imaginarium in Louisville, Kentucky, next weekend. Yeah. And then we're going to be at the uh, Chicago Paranormal Convention, uh, you know, October 19th. So it's, you know, it's going to be a lot of fun and a lot of paranormal in October. This is the time for it. I mean, Wendy's leading ghost tours, going to paranormal shows, and we're talking to our Patreons. And that's going to be October 2nd. If you're interested in joining us, you can check out our Patreon community at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. And a quick shout out to Dr. Ned. Hope Dr. hope you can join us this week for the Hangout Dr. Ned. And we thank you so much for sponsoring the podcast at the level where we get to give you a big special shout out every week, which we love doing. And if you guys haven't signed up for the actual email newsletter yet, uh, you can also check that out at othersidepodcast.com slash subscribe. So if you're just listening to this and you're like, well, I don't know if I'm ready for the Patreon. Spoiler, you are. But uh, it, but I would like to keep and hang out with uh, Mike and Wendy more. Make sure you check out our newsletter where you get the – we have like – all the coolest stuff, as soon as it comes out, uh, we'll pop it in your inbox. And we promise not to bother you uh, unless it's for money. I mean... Oh, come on. Oh, we promise not to bother you. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening. Have a wonderful week, and we'll catch you next week. Alice Cooper bit the head off a chicken. Can you believe that?